I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli, and I write for The New York Times and The New Yorker. I'm Terry Teachout, drama critic of The Wall Street Journal. And I'm Peter Marks, theater critic of The Washington Post. Welcome to another episode of Three on the Isle, I believe episode number 58, a monthly podcast from New York about theater in America. We're hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. And we are coming to you for the first time on Zoom. We have upgraded our uh, facilities to... Yep. I have upgraded my facilities. Yes. 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 That's that sounds vaguely suggestive. Um, uh, yes, uh, we have. We are very grateful for Terry's recent computer software upgrade. And here we are on day 2000 or something of American theater held hostage. Uh, we're, we're back with you as the novel coronavirus numbers climb again. And the dismantling of Trump world is now on the horizon. Which may be of maybe of something that uh, a lot of uh, our theater co- world colleagues are um, are pleased about. Anyway, we hope you're all masking up out there and that everyone's in good health. Uh, I have to ask Elizabeth and Terry, how are you guys holding up in the seventh month of this, or whenever we're in of this shutdown? Well, I, uh... I have work and I have uh, shows to see and. But right now, I'm really staying inside. I mean, New York is on fire, and uh, I don't plan to take any chances while the weather is cold. Yeah, Elizabeth, yeah, I'm, you? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very careful as well. I mean, I, I, I do go out, and I uh, I have been playing tennis, which is a nicely distance sport. Uh, and mm. uh, But I'm also very uh, lucky to... I mean, we we don't live in a bubble, but uh, I, I live in a neighborhood that's uh, has a very high civic spirit, I think. And I would say the uh, the vast majority of people here are, wear masks. Uh, I'm in Park Slope, Brooklyn, and uh, it's actually to the point that it's actually weird to see people who don't wear them because they're such an exception that everybody gives them the stink eye. Uh, it's, it's interesting, um, because when I go to another neighborhood and the, the mask rate is not as high, it just definitely feels weird. Um, so we'll see. I, yeah, I, uh, I, like Terry, I'm looking at the, uh, arrival of the cold month with some trepidation. My family in France is back in lockdown. The country is back in lockdown. Uh, they have a curfew. Uh, they're pretty much back to square one. And I really hope that's not what's in store for us. Although... I mean, the rest of the country is there, you know, so no, it, it is it is not good. And, and this is does not portend well for for theater. Well, that's why I guess I'm I've, I, I'm happy to have had, frankly, I mean, politics has sort of distracted me from right. uh, thinking uh, 24 you know, seven about covid. But, uh, you know, I, I'm I find myself very anxious, just the news these days with the uh, the lack of a of an official call of the election uh, that's where we're at as we're taping this uh, mm-hmm. you know is not is not the ideal sort of psychological condition to be uh, sort of you know trying to navigate the world in right now. Well, it's funny that you should mention politics, Peter, because when we've been talking about theater's desperate straight uh, for months now, since since March, uh, on Three on the Isle, and we've been discussing uh, efforts to rescue theaters, com- theater companies, and 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 arts workers uh, whose careers have been pretty much stuck cold. I mean, if you work in the arts right now, it's it's really a very scary time. Uh, if you work because- in the arts, you're not working. 
Mm. Right. That is uh, exactly uh, that is exactly the the right way to put it. Well, we've noted on the podcast the efforts of new national advocacy advocacy groups like Save Our Stages and Be an Arts Hero that are trying to secure government help for an $877 billion industry that's in many places teetering on the brink. So with an incoming administration that we assume is going to be more sympathetic to the arts, we wanted to ask ourselves, is it possible for the country to do more than it's doing? What could it do? Yeah, yeah, it's and, and and this is the time to ask that. And, and and to that point, I was wondering, you know, is it time for something radically different uh, in, ta- in how we look at arts and culture, governmentally speaking? Should we be thinking about a cabinet level post for arts and culture, a position that's commonly a part of other governments around the world and has never been uh seriously considered, from what I can gather, in this country? Well, I've been doing a lot of thinking about that. Um, I mean, the reason why it's feasible to have such posts in other countries is because they have a tradition of state subsidy for the arts. We do not. And uh, a cabinet secretary, somebody like the Secretary of Defense, uh, is the person in charge of a pre-existing large-scale bureaucracy with a clear-cut mission. to have somebody that we just call the Secretary of Arts and Culture, what would this person do? With whom would they do it? It, 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 stri- it, it's an, it sounds good, but it strikes me that where we need to start is the existing governmental structure, the National Endowment for the Arts, which funnels state support, and see if we can finally get some kind of political consensus for a considerable increase in NEA funding. And at that point, you might well say that the chairman of the NEA becomes the art czar, uh, you know, like a drug czar. But uh, we've got to start with, we've got to start with the money and not with a post. And as we all know, we have never had any luck getting a congressional consensus to make any significant increase in NEA funding. Um, we have lobbyists in place now, like the folks we've talked to, that are, are down there in Washington saying, look, this is desperate. Uh, people are out of work. You've got to do something for them. Maybe that's changing things. Maybe Joe Biden will be sympathetic to that kind of approach. Uh, but how I do it would be to start by ramping up the funding for the NEA and then going from there to the next step. At least that's what I'm thinking at this point. Well, you know, I think that this there's this weird interval where we're, we're sort of in this in this um, in this intermission within an interregnum. It's this wait for uh, by the Biden administration to open itself to open as theaters remain closed. And I I think you know from what Terry's saying, I I certainly agree with the idea of ramping up the the funding. But I'm wondering if. What's needed is something that has been lacking, which is a national leader, someone to speak for the arts at a level that which the government rep- uh, recognizes them as an authority, because now we lack that focus 
to sort of draw attention, to draw media focus on the policy aspects of the arts. It never happens now. And I don't believe that even with a slightly higher profile for the head of the NEA, that we're going to get that kind of attention and that kind of energy around the idea that more money has to be directed to the arts. What kind, it doesn't of, person, have to, what kind of person do you imagine, Peter? Um, I mean, if you were alive, I, the, my, the first words out of my mouth would be Leonard Bernstein. Uh, I was going to say Anna DeVere Smith. Uh, you know, someone with oh, a... Oh, wow. That's an interesting... You know, someone who tra who traverses both a kind of, you know, social consciousness about what the arts can do and who has artistic standing. She's also actually has played uh, a cabinet member on a couple of TV shows. So, I mean, <laughs> she's totally she's got, ready. She's got, but I think you know what, that cl clearly we all know that television is the perfect uh, grooming. Uh, <laughs> we just had such a good example recently. <laughs> I don't think it should be someone who is just performative. You know, there are there was obviously Jane Alexander, who was the head of the NEA at one time, uh, an actress who took on that that position. Uh, you know, Rocco Landisman, the producer, was uh, head of the NEA. Also, two people who had theater, um, uh, you know, creds. But I think that you want someone who can speak more uh, eloquently and broadly to the country at moments when you really need that. And I do think that they have the and I also think that a person like Anna DeVere Smith has the the moral heft to uh, to to uh, to marshal the resources and to marshal the, the con and to sort of uh, make the, the country stand up and listen uh, in a way that it doesn't now. And I think also it would be really useful to have a, a government interlocutor uh, to come in and help maybe serve as moderator or help and intervene in some situations like we have right now with this bickering between Actors' Equity and SAG-AFTRA, which I think is paralyzing a, a lot of stuff and it's putting actors in very tough positions sometimes. Well, some explain actors, that. Explain that. Elizabeth. Well, there are, from the best I can understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there's basically a turf war between Actors' Equity, which, roughly speaking, is the union representing stage actors, and SAG-AFTRA, which represent screen actors. Now, with apparently SAG-AFTRA has slightly looser requirements, and so there's this great area of streaming productions. Is that considered a, a screen product or is that considered mm -hmm. a stage product? And so some actors have signed with, who were with Actors' Equity, have signed with SAG-AFTRA, the screen union. And the two are at loggerheads because, of course, they're also losing uh, the contributions. Well, my and understanding is, my understanding is that that some theater companies are are actually negotiating with SAG-AFTRA on streaming production. I'm going to be writing about in the journal in a couple of weeks. If you, when you watch a screening video, look at the credits, mm -hmm. and you will sometimes be quite surprised to discover that the company, uh, the Irish Rep, is the first one I noticed, is working through SAG-AFTRA and not Equity. Uh, mm -hmm. I've been talking to artistic directors, and they're all telling me the same thing which is that equity is immovable, that it does not want to facilitate streaming. And they've decided that they're going to have to work with SAG-AFTRA. And uh, 
I thought part of the issue was that that SAG-AFTRA was undercutting equity in terms of the rates, uh, that they were accepting lower rates for actors I, to perform to 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 to, to I, get. I think it's part of it, but it's it's only part of it. Another reason is because Actors Equity have said to actors that some uh, productions are not safe to work at, uh, and so does not want their members to participate in those productions. And the actors are like, well, I need to work. And so there was the, you know, that case of that actor mm-hmm. who was profound in the New York Times who had actually quit uh, uh, equity to pick up a job. Right, the woman uh, who played Othello at American Shakespeare. Right, exactly. Yeah, Jessica um, Williams? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, equity has an extremely long history of discouraging the taping of performances. They mm-hmm. believe that it's bad for their members, and they might have had a point 10 years ago or a year ago. But now that public performances are not possible and streaming is the only way that you can function, they're putting real obstacles in the way of companies that want to have longer runs of their shows, that want to make any given performance available to more people. Uh, they just don't want to play. And they have loosened up some, I'm told. But mm-hmm. you, they're are still you both, restrictive. Are you both saying, is, or Elizabeth, is your point that, you know, that, uh, that a... Uh, a czar, so to speak, a Fauci-like figure for the arts could bring both sides to the table. Well, you know, could act as a, I as think a mediator, it might be, maybe. It might be a third party that might be useful in a case like this one, for instance, where you have two organizations that are in, locked in some kind of conflict, um, and it might be useful to have a government interlocutor to basically say, okay, let's all sit under the table and let's talk it out. Because I, I really I have no person, you know, insight into what's happening between those two unions. But I think that's, in theory, that's a case where having a culture, uh, you know, cabinet position may help in broker Would, something. This is going to sort itself out because if equity really is, as I am told, posing obstacles to streaming, then companies are going to switch over, as the Irish rep has. And uh, equity is going to look up at some point in six months or a year and find that nobody wants to work with them because the need for streaming is not going away. It's not going to go away this year. It's not going to go away next year. So, mm-hmm. so to, to go to more to the point of the of the need right now, you know, when we talk about we have had on the people from Be an Arts Hero, for example, who've spoken about the desperate need for either the Heroes Act or Save Our Stages, one of these pieces of legislation that's sitting waiting to be acted on in Congress, to be championed by someone with that level of power, that level of closeness to the president, would seem to me would be to push it. F- Closer to the to the desks of of senators and Congress people uh, than than it, than it exists now. There seems uh, there is always something about the testimony of a cabinet secretary uh, before Congress that has more weight than uh, the president of of uh, Lincoln Center or the or the president of the Kennedy Center. You know, I mean, there's just something of a higher order that seems to me. From just a visibility point of view, even if you don't give them a uh, a ghastly bureaucracy to oversee, no, uh, I I totally agree. You have to have someone who's going to go and do the the the, the Sunday talk shows. You know, mm-hmm. you're going to have to have someone who's going to go. I mean, I I come from a country that has 
long as a tradition of having a culture minister, that person is always very visible. Jacques oh. Lang. Oh, among among others, a, a, a theater, you know, a theater, someone who came from theater. And then recently there was one who came from publishing. Um, you need somebody famous. You need a smart, articulate movie or TV star who will be known by name to the congressman from Lower Podunk. Uh, because uh, congressmen are humans, too. Congresswomen are humans, too. They are also starstruck. And if you can get the right person who will do the homework, is sufficiently famous, these mm -hmm. folks will listen to them. Whether or not they'll make any difference or not, I don't know, but they'll listen. So, so let me just, uh, let me play devil's advocate for a minute. So let's say you get a, a more conservative administration, a more puritanical administration in after, say, uh, uh, something a little more progressive like Biden, and you get an arts culture uh, person who's intent on reigning in free expression in the country. Does, are we, am I suggesting in wanting to do this a platform potentially that becomes dangerous about the First Amendment and, and somehow curbing uh, uh, free expression in this well, country? Or do you so think that's far-fetched? The ratchet effect will apply. Once you've done this, if you can do it, if you can create the, appoint the person, create the superstructure, increase the funding, it's not going to get diminished. It's not going to be shrunk mm. no matter what administration comes in next. I mean, Trump has been talking about cutting the budget to zero for the NEA. Right. And, and he hasn't made any headway with it at all. And this is somebody who really has power and influence on Capitol Hill. Uh, I, I don't think we have to worry about that. No, I, I, I agree with Terry there. I, I don't think we have, to, we have to worry about that. And now we have, we're going to have, just to have a return of an administration where a president actually reads. <laughs> right. Right. And has been known to go to the theater. I mean, like the Kennedy Center must be like, oh my God. Ecstatic. Um, ecstatic. That just like the, the the change in 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 just attitude of yeah, someone who reads. That's it's mind blowing to me. I cover every year I cover the Kennedy Center honors. And you know that is the one day of the year when the 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 figurehead of the government is is sort of there to witness the arts mm -hmm. celebrate itself. And in four years, we have not had that. That has been absent. It's been made up by you know somebody lower. Nancy Pelosi goes. I think I can't remember somebody. I don't think Pence has ever gone. I don't think he has. No. 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 But. Uh, uh, some lower level. Anyway, maybe a Supreme Court justice. I think John Roberts has gone and sat in the presidential box. But, you know, the the net effect is going to be when Biden and Dr. Jill uh, are introduced in the Eisenhower Theater, or is it the Opera House? I can't remember. Uh, I guess it's the Opera House. On the night of the Kennedy Center Honors, the ovation, the outpouring of of pure emotion will be so intense in that space because it's very few times in the year that that any group of artists and people who love the arts can get into a room and express their gratitude or their appreciation for a person in charge. It's just not, we just don't do it very often. So there's a kind of wonderful expectation of the return of that I think that's going to be extremely moving when it happens next We're year. We're probably lucky that Trump doesn't pay any attention to the arts. My God, what if right. he did? Oh my God, that's true. I, Although, just even I mean, but but think how 
dispiriting it has been also just in, in our local town of New York to have a mayor who is completely disengaged from culture right, and has shown no interest in it whatsoever during his two terms. Like there has, I can't. It's disgusting. Off the top of my head, remember over time where he was seen. It's part of the job. It's part of the job. You go, you are, you, you hit a theater, you, you know, I mean, even Giuliani went to the opera. That's crazy that de Blasio mm -hmm. has been so lax. And I think I find it really dispiriting um, because it is part. And it doesn't mean that he has to go. He can do whatever. He can go to the to the to the the Billy Holiday Theater, which I, I love, by the way, in in in, in Bed Stuy, he can go wherever he wants. You know, he mm. doesn't have to. If he wants to play a populist card, he doesn't have to go to the Met. He doesn't have to go to an expensive Broadway show. He can go wherever he wants. But he has gone nowhere, and I, I just find that completely, completely yeah. the demoralizing. Only, the only place I've seen him in uh, in an art setting was when he he did, he did go to Madison Square Garden for the uh, To Kill a Mockingbird free performance oh, right. for 19,000 high school students. He went with his wife and they spoke to the crowd. Uh, that moment uh, was the only time I remember. And, you know, even though I don't like him as a mayor, I would pre I appreciated his uh, paying tribute to the to the to the day. That was important. It is symbolically important, no matter who has the job. Mm -hmm. And and interestingly, the producers and other people who are trying to get Broadway back on its feet have said to me, you know, they've tried to meet with him. And when they do, it's basically the attitude of the of the uh, of the de Blasio administration is not what can we do for you? It's what can you do for us? Yeah. Really? They oh, want, it's so disgusting. They oh. want to know how it, you know, because they think the Broadway owes him a favor. Uh, that's the that's the attitude. So it's 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 so, as you say, so completely frustrating and demoralizing and is probably ultimately part of the reason that this is, you know, this whole effort has been in such disarray that mm -hmm. there is no real concerted, you know, the, 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 all the momentum that you need to get started again has to be generated in part by partnership with mm -hmm. government. Yeah. You well, just don't to, yeah. For us to get our movie star who can testify before Congress and say, these people are starving. Some of them have committed suicide. This is a big part of our economy, and it's a part of what, what makes us a, proud of ourselves as a nation. We mm -hmm. must find a way to help them. Are you saying Secretary Meryl Streep? Yeah, why not? I mean, you know, there you have a, a, a genuinely intelligent, well-spoken person. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I mean, that's what you need. You don't want somebody who needs to be overdubbed. Right. But you also need someone who's willing to put their career aside On for hold. four years. Right. Right. You know, that is very important. You can't do both. You have to have someone who's willing to say, okay, well, I'm, this is what I'm, this is going to be my job for four right. years right? or two or, you know, three or. Yeah. The guy that uh, comes to mind is remember Cal Penn, the actor, uh, he's, uh, oh, yeah. he was in the, uh, in the White Castle movies, I think, wasn't he Cal Penn? Uh, Harold and Kumar. He, was he in Harold? Was that, yeah, was that, yeah. 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 Uh, uh, he went and he worked for the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. He was in the White House. He was an aide to the Obama. And he sort of stayed for a few years and then sort of, I think, you know, the offers started coming back in or something from, you know, it's hard for those people with, you know, performing in their blood to really give right. it up. Right. But I do think that, I just think that, you know, it, uh, with the great thing about for me, I keep coming back to Anna DeVere Smith only because she could do the job for four years and then turn it into a show. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God! I would absolutely watch that. I pay to see that one. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, so we'll see if that uh, has any legs. I don't I'm, know. I'm really, uh, you know, we, we've talked about that. And I, I am I'm also very dispirited by the the lack of response uh, the, the, uh, from some of the bigger players in New York. Um, I feel that there's been, uh, they've abandoned their, their posts and, uh, it's, it's been very, yeah, dispiriting for me because we're, you know, several months into this now and we have not heard a peep from some major artistic directors and presences here. And, uh, um, yeah, I, I find that, uh, I'm dispiriting is a, is to put it mildly, uh, but it's it's and I don't understand why, you know. Well, it strikes me that the situation calls for comedy tonight. Uh, oh God! We can move on. Yes. From oh, another, another oh yes. Department. Okay. Um, I had to really, you know, you know, everybody knows that I cover uh, streaming video of, of theatrical performances, and the other week. I reviewed something I had not yet seen, which was two comedies done by West Coast companies taped in their main stage houses, but without an audience, no one there to laugh, no one there to react. And I, I have, I think we've talked about it here because I've been wondering, can you get real laughter out of a socially distanced audience? Well, even worse, what happens when you're doing a funny play? or a play that's supposed to be funny, and there's no one there to react to. Um, I saw a San Francisco Playhouse uh, do uh, uh, wit, no, art. Oh, my God. Oh. Wit, that, yeah. wit, that hilarious. If wit, if wit is a chuckle, you're in trouble. <laughs> it's a very, very funny play. And then I saw another. No, you're saying art is a very funny play. Yeah, yeah art is a very funny yeah. play. And then I saw a quite a good company. Uh, in the suburbs of San Diego, North Coast Repertory Theater, uh, did same time uh, next year, which is a Neil Simon type two. Oh, my God. That was Bernard Slade, right? Yeah, Bernard mm -hmm. Slade. And in both cases, it was clear to me that the effectiveness of the performances was suffering because of the lack of any kind of response uh, the timing was was got a little slack in places in 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 art, um, and especially in same time next year, which is a Neil Simon type laugh a minute comedy. If people aren't laughing at you, uh, something is going to happen to your own response. You, the viewer, uh, to what you're seeing. I was very struck by that. I've seen most of the shows I have seen so far were taped. In early on where there were audiences present or archival videos. But from here on out, what's coming into the pipeline is for the most part going to be shows without audiences. And I'm, I'm willing to be persuaded, but uh, judging by these two performances, I really wonder whether a very funny comedy, a, a, a good comedy, like, like, Neil Simon's Laughter on the 23rd Floor, one of the funniest plays I've ever seen. But what happens if there's no one out there to respond to it? And I think the answer is it goes a little bit dead. And I'm not sure that, that choosing that kind of material is going to serve, especially regional companies that want to stream video. Uh, if they can't get an audience and they don't, we don't want canned laughter because that sounds canned. You have to have a real responding crowd. And uh, 
I think you're going to do better with drama and with you know serious comedy where there are moments where you laugh, but the fundamental driving force of it is serious. Have, have either of you seen a, a play under these circumstances? Well, I actually also uh, saw that art that you're referring to. Um, I saw that well, and I agree with your assessment of it. I did not, um, I, I didn't think it worked. Uh, and I'm not sure. I, I think the performers were not up to the task. And then compounding that was the fact that, yes, there was no audience. So it didn't work. I agree. It didn't work. I did see a very funny show where I found myself laughing alone on my computer. Um, but um, that was performed live for a Zoom audience. So it's a little different um, because you could see people laugh and... Uh, uh, and it was, um, oh, it was, uh, the elephant room, uh, which is, uh, dust from the stars, which is a sequel to, it's a kind of comedy magic show. It's more like a comedy with a little bit of magic as opposed to a full magic show. Uh, but that was incredibly funny. And I thought it worked really well because they made the most of the zoom context actually. Uh, so I think it's possible to do it if it's thought and conceived for online as opposed to an adaptation like art that is put online. Uh, the elephant room was really conceived to be done online. Uh, and it, it, it really worked. Uh, and they're doing it again in December. So I highly recommend it. And the ending is, there's a great twist at the ending that that is just, just fantastic. Uh, it's one of the best endings I've, I've seen all year. What you um, say makes sense you, to me, Elizabeth, that makes sense. If it's, if it's not, if it's not purpose made. And, um, and another one uh, that I had mentioned, I think I mentioned that on the last uh, podcast is that uh, play the party hop, which is also conceived for zoom. It's written in the era of zoom and it's conceived. It takes place on zoom and it makes the great. And I watched it like that was not like that was pre-recorded, and it, I laughed. I watched it twice and I laughed every time. Uh, it's, it works incredibly well. I think it's still on YouTube too. It's called the party hop. So that works. And I think that's the only way forward with, with comedy. Uh, but maybe it works better if it's a comedy that is more like, I, I think there's more of a chance if it's more verbal than situational, like perhaps an Oscar Wilde play might work, uh, as opposed to something maybe a little bit more slapsticky. Um, I've seen readings a... of wild plays and they do work well mm -hmm. because you're not expecting, you know, Neil Simon insert flap A right. and slot B uh, jokes. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I think uh, that so there's hope, but I, I, uh, I'm, I'm just, just, <laughs> I will say that I'm really depressed at the idea that we probably not going to have like full life theater until way into 2021. Uh, and I'm curious as to what's going to happen and what people are going to come up with. That's the only like ray of hope. Like what are people going to, I mean, there's already new platforms. I watched something. I'm going to talk about that a little later, but I watched something on a platform called Shindig. Uh, I don't know if you guys have any seen any shows on Shindig and Shindig is an incredibly dynamic platform. Um, and what you can do on it is so much more playful. It, it It's like, it's, it's the Tesla to Zoom, Zoom's Model T. 
it's so ahead of Zoom in terms of playfulness and adaptability and interactive potential. Um, and I think we're going to see more as people figure out like how to make the most of those platforms and what they offer. Um, and, you know, we, we, we'll see. Uh, I, I, I'm trying to remain hopeful. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, it's interesting, the history of how this has all evolved. Uh, um, Terry alludes to canned laughter. And of course, there is the great tradition in sitcom land of laugh tracks and how that ever became the norm in this country for the way that we would record comedy uh, that was not filmed before a live audience. But the idea of inserting fake laughter as as a convention that became so, you know, regular routinized, it was just part of how I grew up was always hearing those same recorded laughs on, you know, everything from Gilligan's Island to the Adams family, you know, over, you know, years and years, I was so trained to it by it that, you know, by the, by the time I got to ironic forms of theater that, you know, in some, in some satires would play phony canned laughter in a theater as a way to sort of engender that ridiculously synthetic way to experience comedy. I would laugh at that. You know, it, beca it becomes kind of a, a commentary on itself. And I think then of like, you, you guys remind me like, so what do I laugh at when I watch? Well, you know, I laugh at Sarah Cooper, who does those, uh, you know, uh -huh. obviously the, uh, who's become a big internet deal, um, mimicking, uh, do, doing sort of, um, um, you know, mouthing the words of Trump. You know, that actually is hilarious. And I can actually sit in a room by myself and laugh out loud. And yet when I do see those sort of conventional plays on a stage done in this format you know, on, a, on a proscenium, it it's it's like it, it's like, oh, dear. You know, I mean, don't don't it do, it, it has no immediacy. It, it doesn't even it feels like it's from another planet. Mm -hmm. And I feel so bad for the people on the stage because they're mm -hmm. in these sort of hollow environments. I've, ju I've just discovered Schitt's Creek, which I never saw until a couple of months ago. And it does not have on the Emmy track. And I laugh as hard at that show as I ever have at a play as hard as I've laughed at noises off. And you know, I, the sometimes whoop? my room is sometimes not. <laughs> you know, that I think, is uh, funny. Terry, between Shit's Creek and Zoom, you're completely caught up on, on the last eight months yes, now. I, That's I, it. I've you're done. Caught up with the world. But <laughs> the, the point is that it should be possible to make people laugh under these circumstances. I just haven't seen it done successfully in a theatrical presentation I mean, yet. I laughed so much when I was watching the, the Mary Neely videos in which she was doing all those you know, solo musicals, they were so brilliant. Uh, and I, I would just laugh like watching them on Twitter. Uh, so I, it is, it's possible. It's possible. Uh, I think what's interesting is what uh, a part of what we're describing is, you know, in, you know, very differently from how we discussed this six months ago is the evolution of theatrical thought on the internet, that there are actually people evolving styles that of performance that that do work, some that don't, but often involve interactivity, often involve as you either the Zoom format used in an interesting way. You know, there's everything from where it isn't used at all, really, in the Richard Nelson plays where you're just watching Zoom to mm -hmm. things where I'm I'm involved in shows and I, I, I I'm asked to participate in a way that I'm much more comfortable than when I'm sitting in a theater and asked to participate. Mm -hmm. I don't feel quite as exposed and, and forced into a situation I don't like. 
uh, I think with the with the, with the web, you're much more uh, attuned to the idea that it's participatory, just because we use it that way as a tool in the rest of our lives. So that has, I think, it does have potential and comedy more than anything because we do want to share that. You know, that's the emotion. You know that I think we most need to feel in a cathartic way on yeah. on a screen. We want a laugh together. That's true, and I think that's why all those um, interactive magic shows, like Mentalist, Mentalist shows, are so popular because you see people, you know, being bamboozled right, right in front of you. I mean, I, right. I I love them. I've done so many of them, uh, and there's always that gotcha moment. And when you picked, and you're the you know the vic- the victim quote-unquote victim in the gotcha moment it's so exciting it's so much fun uh and and there's absolutely no there's no secret why those shows are so incredibly did you know that uh helder uh Guimaraes, the i'm not sure how to pronounce his name but the yes, Guimara, musician helder yeah. uh, Guimaraes, who did the present that show uh made more than seven hundred thousand dollars wow that's that show made wow. $700,000. That's great. Uh, which, you know, oh, gross, fantastic. Uh, which is amazing. So it yes. can be done. It right. was extended three times. Uh, he has a new one coming out, uh, which uh, pr- probably is already all sold out already and probably will be extended again and again. Uh, right. And they, I and they, can't wait. They closed with a waiting list of 12,000 people. Really? Oh yeah. 12,000 people still waiting to see it. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I do think, you know, going back to Terry's sort of observation about these plays, you know, when I thought of when he said same time next year, I think that's challenging, you know, in a live theater on a proscenium these days. It's such right. a, a dated piece of uh, theater. I mean, it's an interesting <laughs> idea. I think it was originally Ellen Burstyn and Charles Grodin or two yes. actors like oh that. Yeah. And I don't think uh, it but, anymore. Was that part? And that, I was going to ask: Is that part of the problem? It's such I mean, a period being, piece. Yeah, yeah it, and, and, and was, was it a chore to sit through? Not quite, but uh, <laughs> I, kept, I kept thinking to myself: Who is going to understand a play that makes prominent references to people like Chet Huntley and Ed Lacey? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to know who they were. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I grant, I grant you what, something that American yeah. theater has just discovered in new surveys is that it is older playgoers who are now embracing online theater, hmm. and uh, which I, I know from ex- experience, who are telling artistic directors, we want this even after the pandemic. Uh, we're not going to feel safe with coming to theaters. And... Um, this is going to give us an opportunity to see your shows. And a lot of artistic directors are telling me this is our plan. Even when we're back in the house, we're going to continue to make our shows available this way. We are mm-hmm. seeing a major new change in the theater ecology and a good one. And, and that's why one of the big developments over the past uh, few months has been the way uh, the uh, companies that license shows have been working out new contracts to allow for some kind of streaming, usually limited, you know, usually ticketed for a limited amount of time, but it's now built into uh, license licensing contracts. If you want to do a play at whatever, you know, professional amateur, whatever uh, schools, they have now 
uh, new new licensee contracts and it's expanding. And for instance, in schools, uh, the companies that specialize, we should do a show on that, by the way, because there's this entire ecosystem of playwrights who are superstars in 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 schools hmm. and that you would not have heard of. Hmm. Uh, and and I'm talking superstars. Uh, we should wow. totally talk to one or two of them. I have them That's on because idea. it's insane. Uh, they, they're really, they're huge. But anyway, so they've been very active in leading the charge in saying, okay, we, we are, need to have this new contracts because, and for schools, for instance, it, it came up before, but there was no real urgency. Or oh, the, the grandparents want to ski and it's very limited. They're not making money out of that, but it's the grandparents want to see the, the kids school play and they are in another state. And, well, now they can stream it for like 48 hours after that show is concluded. And it's, um, so that's just one example, but they really, that's a very, very dynamic uh, area actually. And there were some changes brewing before, but they've been really um, precipitated by, by, by COVID and, I, and for the, the better, I think, for the better. Well, I've had a practical way to, to track this. Uh, you know, the last show I saw was The Hot Wing King. And then suddenly the theater's locked down. You mean on stage? Yeah, on the stage. On and, stage, and right. I, I, and it hit me immediately. I've got to figure out something to do or I'm not going to have anything to do. And I thought at this point, some theaters began to announce that they were going to stream. And I thought, okay, let's see if this continues. This is a start. At that point, I rarely had more than one show each week that fit our parameters for coverage. Now I pick and choose. I think mm -hmm. I have like nine or 10 shows in December that I couldn't mm -hmm. review. Uh, wow. Everybody's getting into the act. Uh, the response is powerful and positive. They don't make an enormous amount of money on it, but they do make some. And some mm -hmm. right now is better than nothing. Way better mm -hmm. than nothing. Yeah, I'm curious uh, if our producer, Erica Huang, actually does know who uh, Chet Huntley was. I mean, she can just like, no, she's shaking her head I, no. I, I yeah, don't know who that is. Uh, well, he was a great famous would. newscaster of the Anchorman of, with David Brinkley in the 60s. Uh, uh, no. The Huntley-Brinkley Report was Right, went huge. off the air in 66, I think. Uh, you know, it's and it's interesting. I think this is I think you're all I think there's a, a, a truth here in that, you know, in how theater is going to change permanently in terms of what things are coming up. I guess you guys know about this show blindness that's coming to New York or do you? I do. Which is, is, it, a really, is it still coming? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. No. And I know for a fact that it's going to be simultaneously produced in Washington and I believe Toronto. I'm not sure about that, uh, but I know that's New York and, and Washington. Yeah, the Daryl Roth Theater in New York, in which 40 audience members, at least the one in Washington, are going to sit in utter pitch black darkness with headphones on and hear the story uh, narrated by Juliet Stevenson of a person who is the only seeing person on Earth, the only person who has is not blind. Uh, and you're going to watch this as if you are one of the blind people in the uh, in the population. But, but I think about that, and I don't know if they're going to actually stream her voice to each um, um, facility or if it's going to be like a recording that they give to each, but I think it is almost simultaneous. But it, it just, you know, I mean, again, it's another variation on using the technology that's obviously becoming much more common uh, because of COVID uh, that we have to sort of use to, to, to make these communal experiences. 
in a very creative way. And the innovation uh, will come from the ground up, from regionals up, from off-Broadway companies up. It's not going to come from the top down. Right. These well, are the you, people that are going right. to try to find new Absolutely things right. That's absolutely right, I think. Right. In the meantime, we review what is on offer to us. And obviously, that remains a menu of productions almost entirely on the web. <clears throat> the challenges of the platform uh, that we use to watch and analyze productions made, made clear to me when I watched the comedies that just didn't have an audience and didn't come off. But um, most of the shows that I've watched, I think, have come off. And, and uh, let's all talk about what we've seen lately that we've really liked. Well, I uh, last weekend I saw the, the. I want to talk about that show that I was alluding to recently on that platform called Shindig, uh, and it was a show called uh, Ready Made Cabaret 2.0. And Ready Made being a, an allusion to Marcel Duchamp, uh, Ready Mates, uh, and it's also a show that really draws on the kind of the randomness that the Dada movement. Mm. Uh, preached so the way it worked is that so you were we're all on shinding and shitting like here we're, we're talking to each other on zoom and we have those boxes shinding has all these little boxes and they're floating around and you can mm. create a great background to that and the, the boxes and then you can create like viewing rooms so you can pair i had a plus one <laughs> i had a plus one for the show and my plus one was in toronto and so we met up in one of the viewing rooms before the show where we're chatting and people could join us it's up to six people which is the two of us and nobody else could hear us and we could actually continue chatting during the show which we didn't do so you can chat to each other in your little bubble or you can also text and uh there's all these great little um bells and whistles like for instance you can each bubble can adjust the sound like i could adjust the sound of the performers individually uh there were uh so one of the things we were doing is like the 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 production they had like i think 26 or 28 prepared scenes and then you could volunteer to roll a virtual dice uh using one of the shindig bells and whistles and let's say you roll uh a 12 could write well three dice and they would play scene number 12 if you rolled uh, 24, they would play scene 24 or do, you know. Huh. Um, so that was pretty interesting. Uh, yes, it, it, yeah, it definitely had some of that, uh, some of that uh, feeling. And um, it had, a, so, I mean, some of it worked. And mostly what I really regret is that it didn't have the kind of chaotic, anarchic uh, vibe of Dada. If you're going to really refer to Dada mm. that much, there is something very almost destructive about Dada. Uh, it was, mm -hmm. uh, it was, it was not, it was a chaotic, you know, like in, in Dungeons and Dragons, it was a, what you call the chaotic, the kind of mischievous, but not necessarily positive, like, whereas this felt like a big kind of nice rah-rah meeting uh so i wish they had gone more into that darker uh thing but there, at one point we 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 there was a performer who we could give him instructions we could type in instructions and say we, we had to list a body part a verb and a number and that was the repetition so then you had to do a dance uh so you could someone someone uh typed um uh, elbow you know, someone type booty twerk three. So you had to, you know, 
torque three times and they came really fast. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that stuff mm. um, as the platform become increasingly more sophisticated in terms of interaction with the performers, but also among the audience members. Um, I, I don't know. I feel like every month there's something new that is right. kind of blowing my mind uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. in terms of what can be done. I, I saw actually uh, there's a there's a game on on uh, Twitter uh, on uh, on uh, Zoom. I'm sorry that uh, is called Twist that has been created by a bunch of theater people, and it's kind of sleep no more on a line. It has a bunch of rooms, and you have 20 players, and the and you it's it's kind of like Survivor. You you go from room to room, conspiring and lying with the other members of the uh, you you form alliances. That sounds great. To, and each each uh, round, you eliminate somebody in the uh, cohort, and you you're, you're basically you know screwing somebody who you're actually claiming to like. And these people, I, I played, I watched it being played by about twenty stage managers with each other, and they are oh vicious. My God. It was vicious to watch. And you collect, there's things you collect, certain cards that give you powers. It's, it's, oh it's my a, God. It's called I twist. I need yeah. to yeah. do this. I need yes, to do you, this. Yeah, you have yeah, to yeah. me up. I yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah. need to do this. Yeah, twist. So yeah, it's a lot of fun, actually. And they've got a bunch of, and they set up sort of times for the games. So um, I can even send you the, uh, the link to the people. Absolutely. Well, but I was going to... Peter, what have you seen right. since we were last together? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So quickly, <laughs> so I I watched uh, another one of the Geffen Playhouse, which has become kind of interactive central, this kind of powerhouse. I think one of the most mm -hmm. interesting theater companies in America right now Absolutely. for their ability to make this pivot. They're doing a show called Inside the Box, which is hosted and performed by a guy named David Kwong, who devises crossword puzzles for the New York Times about, among other gigantically challenging things. He's a very smart and charming guy, and he takes you through about an hour and 10 minutes. Have you played it? Um, have you done it, uh, Elizabeth? I, I think we were in the same room. Oh, that's right. No, we were in the same room. I was room. on with Lisa Fung from the LA Times, and that way we were on in The Mentalist Show. Oh, together. that's right. That's right. Yeah, the, anyway, <laughs> but anyway, and, and he takes you through a series of word games that are uh, really challenging and fun and not uh, humiliating if you don't get them, you know, you don't, he won't make you feel bad if you don't get the answers, but he sends you material. He sends you material before that you download, you, you, you fill out and you start to play, but it's all, they're all word games. And he's, he's really smart about, you know, all these shows try to weave in some history of the games and stuff, but the real fun of them is the playing of the little episodes with other people you've never met before. Mm -hmm. And I would, I think it's running through January. I bet it'll extend if they can. They've got another show, a detective show that's about to start. I, I am. Mean, I'm going to do that one. Are, are you doing that one? Yes, of course. Oh, no, I'm hooked. I am totally I'm, hooked. Too. I'm yeah, completely hooked. This is, yeah. uh, yeah, this is yeah, really so, bringing me back to my college days when I was playing Dungeons and Dragons. Seriously. I mean, well, I've completely go. reverted to my yeah, super nerdy. Not that I ever let, you know, really left it, but I've completely regressed back to that stage of my life. They, there's nothing nerdy about any of the three of us. Not please. at all. Not <laughs> at all. No, 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 no. <laughs> Not yeah. at all. Not so, at all. So, so Terry, what have you, uh, what have you got beside the comedies? Anything? Yes. The best thing I've seen since we were together last and maybe the best thing I've seen online since the wow. started was the Irish reps production of Eugene O'Neill's a touch of the poet. Wow. With every successive production that they, uh, webcast, the Irish rep is growing increasingly sophisticated technologically. 
they're now this you know touch of the poet requires about seven or eight actors the actors in this production were on uh one one was was in europe one was on in lookout mountain tennessee they were all over the place they were all sent green screens to perform in front of and the irish rep has now reached a level of sophistication where they can put they couldn't do this before they can consistently put more than one person in the shot so believably that the illusion that they are in the same room on the same stage is uncanny. And beyond that, a touch of the poet is a tricky play. It's, it's got a whole lot of, of dead air on, in front, about half an hour's worth. Uh, but, oh uh, you know, I mean, it's one of O'Neill's uh, uh, irritatingly long-winded plays. Mark, you're, you're really selling it. Yeah, yeah exactly. It gets, <laughs> Let um, me add it. <laughs> once it gets going, it is a, a major piece of, of theatrical work. And Kieran O'Reilly, the, one of the two directors of the Irish Rep, staged it with Robert Cuccioli as Con Melodi, the, uh, the unfortunate uh, hard-drinking ne'er-do-well who's at the center of the, of the play. And... It was fabulous. It was certainly better than any stage production of this difficult plight that I've ever seen. And one no longer need make technical allowances for what they're doing. They've got it down. Um, nobody is doing a better job of creating the illusion of a staged production uh, in which the actors are in different places. Uh, I'm. I, I, was it I Zoom? More impressed. Say again. Was it Zoom? Was it Zoom? No, no. Every everybody is is they take themselves separately and then it's all edited together. Oh, got it. Um, uh, they've gotten beyond that too. Um, and well, the, what's interesting too. What's interesting too with the Irish rap stuff is that I believe I mean it's pre-recorded, but they keep to the tradition of appointment theater. So it's not like you can watch it whenever you want. It's pre-recorded, but you have to sign up at like seven p.m. or two p.m. matinee. I, I I kind of really love that. Um, I do too. I do too. It's uh, I, I I love that they're doing that. I mean I've watched a lot of stuff on demand, and yes, it's fun to be able to watch it whenever you feel like it. But there's something about having to write it down in your calendar and having to be there right. at the appointed time gathering and, together and not not forget it which i have confess i have done uh, right right me too well the next uh, thing they're doing is bill Irwin's one man beckett show i'll be there mm. and i will be very which is retooled is retooled specifically for the for the for online yes. so it's not going to be the one that we saw yeah, i'm, I'm very should. much looking forward to that one yes yeah. and we should just say that irish rep is based in on the west side in new york mm -hmm. uh so it's a it is a new york uh, off-broadway uh, of long-standing company mm -hmm. which is okay making itself known throughout the country to, exactly right. Big deal about streaming video yes. of, of regional mm -hmm. indie and off Broadway is suddenly Indeed. you don't have to take my word for it. You can see for yourself. Right. All right. Well, God, that was a uh, that was action packed. Uh, <laughs> and we've run the table of critical issues once again. Uh, so I believe that's it. I can't believe it. Mid November, and he here we are again. On a very gray, rainy day in New York, but uh, you guys are a ray of sunshine. Oh God, yes, are you? I know, I yes, know. Right. It's uh, it, it definitely it's uh, it definitely it's, it's it it picks me up to do this. It's um 
I really feel like I, if I feel like I'm, my spirits are sinking, I feel like, okay, well, we'll, we're, we're, we're going to get through this and there, there will, you know, I, I'm trying to see the, the, the glasses half full. I mean, it's not trying to make light of anything, but, uh, there may be some, some changes that will be positive. And one of well, them will be that comp like local companies will get a bigger audience. Well, the you know? good news is, Elizabeth, your therapist has renewed you your prescription for 10 more shows. So we'll, we'll have you on for, an, for another set but of wait, shows. Wait, I'm, I'm getting a text from my insurance and it's not covered. Oh, dear. Oh, God. All right. Mm. Um, anyway, so until next time, I'm Elizabeth Vincentilli. I'm Terry Tchad. And you've been listening to Three on the Isle, a podcast from New York about theater in America, hosted by American Theater Magazine. I'm Peter Marks. Our producer is the far younger than the rest of us, Erica Huang. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at threeontheisle.com, spelled out, and write to us, also spelled out, at threeontheisle at gmail.com. Ask us questions. We'll come back next time with more, more from the mailbag. That's right. And please let us know what other topics you'd like to hear us discuss on future episodes. And don't forget to leave a review or rating on iTunes or Google Play. And and before I thank uh, everybody for listening, uh, Erica, you have to uh, not like, okay, yes or no. Are, did you ever play Dungeons and Dragons? Yes, I knew oh, yeah, it. Yes, I had a feeling. I had a feeling. I knew it. I knew it. I just, it was, it was a vibe. It was a vibe. Anyway, thanks for listening. Uh, we'll be with you again soon and hopefully not now and forever virtually on the aisle. 